Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Visit lisa.com forward slash hoops to learn more. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com forward slash h-o-o-p-s. The Volume. Welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Wednesday, everybody. We are live on AMP. So if you're watching on YouTube or listening on the podcast feed, don't forget that AMP is the very first place that you guys can get these shows. We are continuing our player rankings today with number 18, 17, and 16. You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to The Volume's YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our videos. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys don't miss any show announcements. And if for whatever reason you miss one of these videos and you can't get back over to YouTube to finish, don't forget you can find them wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. All right, let's talk some basketball. So number 18 is one of my all-time favorite players, Paul George. Now, again, every single time I say something like this, I always want to qualify it with, I don't think I'm an NBA player. Don't think I'm particularly close. I have way too much respect for NBA players and what they've accomplished making it to that level. So when I talk about my game like this, it's never intended to be like that. It's just the way I like to talk about basketball. Um, This version of myself right now here in my early 30s, the player that I try to be like the most is Paul George. I'm like completely obsessed with his fluidity is the word that I like to use to describe him. Fluidity to me has to do with the basketball concept of energy transfer. It's getting the basketball from a dribble combination or a move, some sort of footwork, up into a jump shot. And the hardest part of that type of transfer, that move, is getting the ball to the rim. And the only way to get it there is you have to have a fluidity with the basketball, meaning you have to be so sharp with your handle that as you go from that crossover, let's just use crossover as an example. It could be anything. It could be an in and out dribble between the legs behind the back, step back, whatever it is. But let's say in this crossover dribble, getting that ball to flow directly into the shooting pocket and up into the shot without having any sort of hitch because a hitch breaks that energy transfer and causes you to lose power, which makes it harder to get the ball to the rim. So energy transfer is the first big part there in that fluidity. Then there is 
the power in your legs. I always joke with the young players that I work with that we focus so much on dunking, but the number one thing you'll need leg strength for is having the ability to get to your spots and not lose power along the way. If I do a crossover step back move and I just push hard off my right foot and I have to stick my left foot out to stop my side to side energy to get myself to go straight up and down and to get the lift I need out of that shot to get the ball to the rim, there's a huge leg strength element. So leg strength and fluidity are the two most important parts of getting that energy transferred from the dribble combination to the top of the shot. I don't think there's anybody better as in terms of a wing, a guy who plays at a similar size, um, that is better at doing that energy transfer into a pull-up jump shot than Paul George. I, th- I think his his ability to get to jump shots out of dribble combinations is straight up beautiful basketball. And that is why he is one of my favorite players. That's why I try so hard to replicate him in my own drills and, and work to try to, to build that into my own game. And I think that's a big part of why he's so popular with young basketball players around the entire basketball community. I, I think uh, a lot of people were surprised at the NBA draft at how many people said Paul George was their favorite player. Famously, Brandon Miller said that. And and again, that I think that's a big part of that. Paul George to me represents a lot of of a lot of the specific skill traits that basketball players strive for. And that's why I'm such a huge fan of his. Now he would be a lot higher on this list if it wasn't for his lack of availability. He missed the playoffs last year, and then he missed 61 games the year before that, which in large part led to them missing the playoffs entirely, taking that tough loss in the play-in tournament. This year, though, um, in terms of production, still as good as he's ever been, 24-6-5 on 59% true shooting. Uh, Played in 56 games, but missed the final nine games of the regular season and missed the entire playoff run. So again, that's why like, I look at Paul George as a guy that is you know, at his very best, closer to that 10 to 15 range, but we're dropping him here as a result of availability. He did have a very balanced creation season, 1.04 points per possession in pick and roll, that's 73rd percentile, 1.07 points per possession in ISO, that's 74th percentile, 1.07 points per possession in the post, 63rd percentile, so well over a point per possession in every single static half-court shot creation situation. He also was 1.18 points per possession in spot-up situations, that's excellent, that's in the top tier that you'll find in the NBA. All super impressive considering he didn't shoot the ball exceptionally well. For all of the talk that I just, uh, uh, all of the things that I just said about Paul George's fluidity, he didn't actually shoot great percentages relative to his peers at pull-up jump shots. So like 38% on pull-up jumpers, 47% when you weight that for threes. Again, Kevin Durant, best in the world at it, shoots him at about 55%, right? So a big part of that though, and this is something that I think uh, needs to be considered here. Paul George takes a lot of really tough pull-up jump shots. And one of the advantages when you're Kevin Durant is like, there's there's not really much of, there's not really such thing as a tough jump shot for him. He's so damn tall that even tougher jump shots for him are easy, right? And Paul George is more standard in terms of the measurables for a wing. Like when he's going into a random environment, like if he's going on the road to play Brooklyn and he's going against Mikhail Bridges. Mikhail Bridges, he's not given up. He's not that doesn't have much of a physical advantage there. So he goes down to New Orleans and Herb Jones is guarding him. 
doesn't have much of a physical advantage there. So he's kind of like average size, so to speak, at his position. And so when he takes a lot of those really, really tough contested pull-up jump shots, that actually kind of nukes his efficiency. He took 433 pull-up jump shots this year. That was his most common shot type by far. As a matter of fact, that was 43% of his attempts Overall, I think it's kind of a curse of his skill set, and and this is something that I personally have to fight all the time because I uh, obviously just playing in pickup runs and men's leagues and in Tucson, like I I don't there's maybe ten college level players that uh, in the entire city at any given moment, which means you might have two or three of them at any given run, and so as a result of that, like I can be lazy sometimes, and I can just take a step back three really whenever I want because it's easy. I can just get to it whenever I want. When the reality is, is like. I'd be better served to be more physically aggressive because I'm bigger and stronger than everybody, right? That's kind of the way I look at it with Paul George. It's almost like he's cursed by his own skill set. He's so damn talented and so damn good at taking and making those tough shots. Like again, 38% seems low, but when you look at the shot quality, I mean, he's hitting 38% are really tough shots. And, and that goes to show you how incredibly skilled he is. And so I think that's the thing that he's been fighting for the most part over the course of the last half decade. Paul George is at his best when he goes to the rim first. And if you look at the the 2021 playoff run, which was kind of his breakout point, which we'll get to in a minute, he was getting to the rim and finishing in the restricted area three times a game. And that was a huge part of what drove his big breakout playoff run, right? And so that's always the the the, the curse with Paul George. I believe he's capable of being as efficient as the top guys in the league at his position if he kind of tweaked his shot selection even a little bit more. But again, despite going 38% on pull-up jump shots, he's still at a 59% true shooting this year. A big part of that was his incredible spot-up shooting like we talked about earlier. And then he also got to the rim a good amount this year. 2.5 makes in the restricted area per game. 69% there, which is excellent. Also drew a good amount of fouls. So he was bolstering his efficiency with all of those little things that bolster efficiency. And so if you can kind of tweak instead of 43% of his attempts being pull-up jump shots, getting that down to 35%, trying to get more advantage situations, um, attacking Uh, the basket more, turning his back to the basket and attacking out of the post more. I think those are ways that he can bump up into that. Because like all the best pull-up jump shooters in the league are up above 60% true shooting. Like Even Devin Booker is up above 60% true shooting. And Paul George has actually never had a season above 60% true shooting. And so I think that is the next step for him, is just kind of tightening up his shot selection a bit. Now, Uh, The 2020 bubble was a low point for Paul George. He was barely getting to the rim. As a matter of fact, he got to the rim less than two times, uh, less than two makes in the restricted area per game that season. Really fell apart in the Denver series, in particular, lost his confidence. But then it clicked for him. And again, this is why I always tell you guys, don't define a basketball basketball player based on two weeks worth of games. That's what I've been telling you about Jalen Brown. That's what I told you about Kevin Durant last year. Right after the 2020 low point for Paul George, in 2021 was his best playoff run by a mile. Like I said, he started prioritizing getting to the rim first, three makes per game in the restricted area. And it, again, it's it, why is it so important to get to the rim first? When that is your bread and butter and your pull-up jump shot is a counter, you'll notice defenders will be on their heels versus on their toes. Now imagine I'm guarding you and you are prioritizing pull-up jump shots and you're taking you know, half your shots off the dribble like that. In my defensive stance, I'm going to be up on my toes and I'm going to be forward and I'm going to be leaning and getting my arm into your shooting pocket to try to disrupt that energy transfer like we were talking about earlier, right? Now, if you're getting to the rim a lot more 
and I'm only ta- you're only taking a pull-up jump shot on a third of your possessions, now I'm probably going to be guarding more back in my stance. A little bit ready to take quick retreat steps rather than having to quick lunge forward to contest a pull-up jump shot. Now when I'm on my heels and I'm further back, when you do take a pull-up jump shot, suddenly that really tough jump shot that you're taking off the dribble becomes a much easier jump shot because the defender's not up in your shooting pocket. I would venture to guess if you actually sorted through all of Paul George's pull-up jump shots and looked at quality, the ones where he has good separation, I bet you he shoots over 50% on. And then the ones where he doesn't get great super uh, separation, he's probably in the low 30s. And that probably dictates where his percentage lies there kind of firmly in the middle, right? And so that's why it's so important to attack the rim first. You keep defenders on your heels, on their heels, and you make it so that you can get to your pull-up jump shot at a higher quality uh, in higher quality situations. Um, but that rim first approach led to his best, best playoff run ever. 29-9-4, and 4, 58% true shooting. Basically knocked out the one seed Jazz. The one seed Jazz by himself. They lost in six in the conference finals. And in that series was the DeAndre Ayton game winner in game two that stole a game that the Clippers were in good position to win. So he came very, very close to making it to the NBA finals without Kawhi Leonard. That was his best playoff run ever. Right after his ugliest playoff moment ever. Uh, and the unfortunate thing is we just haven't seen him in the playoffs since then because of his injury history. So we haven't really seen him have an opportunity to demonstrate that he can do that consistently. Um, lastly, Paul George is still capable of being an outstanding defensive player. He's not what he used to be. A few years ago, he was in the top tier of perimeter defenders, uh, but there's been some drop off there. However, in a playoff series, you're never worried about Paul George. He's going to be an above average, a huge positive on that side of the ball, which has to be factored in here. You're not going to uh, be losing that matchup. So in summary, he's probably in the second tier of three-level scores in the NBA. Main thing there is just bumping up his efficiency a little bit and his overall volume. He's typically around 24 points per game. Obviously, the best guys are around 27, 28 points a game, right? Um, he's also an outstanding off-ball player, knocks down catch-and-shoot threes and attacks well with an advantage, and a very good defensive player. And the big downside here is his availability. He hasn't played a playoff game in over two years, which is what keeps him lower on the list at this point. For instance, the guy I have ahead of him that we're about to talk about, Jalen Brown, I actually think in a, hel- in a healthy playoff situation, I'd take Paul George over Jalen Brown. But Jalen Brown plays in a million games every year and is always available in the postseason. So... That has to be a difference maker here because once again, Paul George was unavailable this year and Jalen Brown wasn't. He was available and and that has to factor in. So number 17, Jalen Brown. Um, season recap, career high 27 points, career high seven rebounds, three and a half assists per game, which matched his career high. Uh, he was really good for two rounds in the NBA playoffs. Through the first two rounds against Atlanta and Philly, he averaged 25 points per game, shot 54% from the field and 47% from three. But then he completely fell apart in the Miami Heat series. He averaged 19 points per game in that series. He was 7 for 43 from three. I spent a lot of time... Um, I had more turnovers than assists and kind of just kind of fell apart, lost his mojo, lost his confidence. But I spent a lot of time today in particular diving into that series and trying to figure out what specifically went wrong for Jalen Brown. And we are going to get to that in a few minutes because it was different than what I expected on rewatch. Um, but I want to spend some time talking more about Jalen Brown's positive before that. 
There were only five players in the entire league this year that played in at least 60 games, scored at least 26 points per game, grabbed at least six rebounds per game, and dished out at least three assists per game. Again, that's not a crazy bar- like basement level, right? 26, 6, and 3. So that's that's pretty that, – that's, that's below uh, those markers for most of the top players in the league. So 26, 6, and 3. And just play in over, play in less than three fourths of the games. Play in sixty of eighty-two games. That's a very low bar. Five guys did that. So, again, as as we're talking about the supermax here, when it comes down to what you're getting, and again, don't remember, don't forget that he was great through the first two rounds of this year's playoffs, and he was great for the most part in last year's playoffs when they were two wins away from the title. So take away that little two-week disaster against Miami. He's been one of the most reliable and productive guys in the whole league. And that's why he deserves the amount of money that he makes. That's why he's a definitive top 20 player, even with the weaknesses that he has. So don't let two weeks of bad basketball overshadow that. Now, let's talk about the Miami Heat series. Really, I thought the Miami Heat series, upon rewatch, exposed his inefficiencies as an on-ball creator. Now, during the regular season, he was decent in pick and roll, 1.03 points per possession, 66th percentile, so a little above average. Not so much in ISO and post-up situations, 0.88 points per ISO in the regular season, that's 39th percentile, 0.9 points per post-up in the regular season, that's 30th percentile. Remember, when I give you points per possession data, I'm giving that including passes. Um, Most of his success as a basketball player right now comes in transition and in spot-up situations. Transition was his most common play type. Jalen Brown scored 495 points this year just in transition. That was third most in the entire NBA. little trivia for you guys. Who do you think went ahead of him? Number one's obvious, Giannis. Who do you think was second? The answer is Shea Gilgis-Alexander. But And Shea continues to just have a bunch of wild stats that don't even make sense. But again, the third best transition threat in the entire NBA. And then spot up was actually his second most common play type. He was super aggressive off the catch, especially driving closeouts. 372 points scored in spot up situations that ranked 20th in the entire NBA this season. So again, even though the production is is fantastic, the majority of it is coming in advantage situations. Transition is an advantage situation and spotting up is an advantage situation. In the Miami series, Miami really shut off his transition opportunities. And his jumper failed him. So the two easiest baskets that he was getting were taken away. To give you an idea, in the regular season, Jalen Brown averaged 7.4 points per game in transition. The Heat held him to four, so almost half that. In the regular season, Jalen had a 49% effective field goal percentage on catch-and-shoot jumpers. In the Miami series, he went just 7 for 27 on catch-and-shoot threes, including just or catch-and-shoot jumpers, including just four for 24 on catch-and-shoot threes. That's just 33.3% in effective field goal percentage. So he lost about half of his transition production, and he lost about a third of his spot-up efficiency. And when you took those two things away, suddenly the only way he could impact the game was in the half-court offensively attacking a set defense, right? And especially since his defensive, you know, uh, commitment and production has declined, when that wasn't going well for him, those half-court uh, set situations, it was a big problem. Early in the series, Miami went with small guards on him to try to attack his handle. A lot of Gabe Vincent, a lot of Kyle Lowry. He had six turnovers in the first game. And then in game seven, I thought Eric Spolster did something really smart. He ended up putting Jimmy Butler on him 
from the opening tip, and he just sapped him of confidence. He had eight turn uh, eight turnovers in the game. A lot of just like Jalen Brown trying to drive to the left, and he, you know. We'll talk more about his handle in a second, but he's just not really good at protecting the ball right now. And so Jimmy Butler would just reach around the backside of him and swat the ball away. And then you could just see like it just deflated Jalen Brown. And I think those things are connected in the shot result department. Like he was four for 24 on catch and shoot threes. He was one for six on wide open threes when the defender was at least six feet away. And this is a guy who was an outstanding shooter in the regular season. He shot over 40% on pull-up jump shots. You know, 49% effective field goal percentage on catch-and-shoot jumpers. So he's a good jump shooter who couldn't make a shot against Miami. And I think a big part of that was confidence. I, I will always say that feeling good about yourself is just as important a part of the game of basketball as anything else. Confidence, rhythm, flow, all these intangible things, they do matter. I know that all of the the analytics guys don't like to pretend those things exist, but they do. And anybody who's played the game of basketball knows that that, that stuff really matters. And Jalen lost confidence as a result of the way Miami was guarding him. And then he started to miss his easy shots. They took away those transition dunks and easy baskets that helped him gain his confidence. And that's where he fell apart. Um, and this is where the band, like in those like static situation, uh, sta- static situations in the half court, that is where his ball handling became an issue. Now, when I watch Jalen Brown play, I think ball handling is more complicated than people think. I don't think Jalen Brown doesn't have control over the basketball. Like, I bet you if you ask Jalen Brown to do a ball handling drill, he's going to look like he's got great control over the basketball. The main flaw I was seeing with Jalen Brown was exposing the basketball. Now, one of the most important parts, I, I talk about this with my young players, we do a ball pressure drill every single uh, every single day now in, in, in practice when we do our early morning training sessions. And what I tell the bigger guys is, is like, Id- identify your advantage. Like, if you're a quicker player, then you want to go around people. And use your speed. But if you're a bigger player and you are exposing the ball in front of you and trying to go around people, the smaller guy is just going to reach in and take the basketball away from you. If you're a bigger player, you have to protect the basketball. You have to turn your body. And it's it's almost like a full court post up. Remember Andre Miller? You see Chris Paul do this a lot to this day. When you like the the players that don't have a quickness advantage, they just protect the basketball. That's all they do. They just turn their back and they kind of do a full court post up, up the floor, kind of spin and spin and back and forth to where they get to, to where they get to a spot where they can do something within the offense. And what's great about Jalen Brown is he has such a physical advantage over everybody. Like you should never be able to get away with putting Gabe Vincent on Jalen Brown, or Kyle Lowry on Jalen Brown. Now, in his defense, Boston in general, and this falls on Joe, Joe Missoula, did not do a very good job of setting up Jalen and Jason for success in spacing situations. Miami was so good at clearing the side and just giving Jimmy Butler all the space in the world to go to work, and that was part of the issue. Even when Jalen Brown did get by his man, there's Miami defenders digging down on him. And again, it's not that he's losing control of the basketball. It's guys swatting down at the basketball. Jimmy Butler reaching from behind. It's the Gabe Vincent and Kyle Lowry digging out, uh, digging at the ball from down low. That's where he's losing control of the basketball. And so I think for Jalen Brown, it's a couple of different things. It's seeing the floor better. So knowing when not to drive. 
because sometimes it's like there's not really an advantage to be gained because even if you beat your man, you're just getting into traffic. And even if there's a pass available for you there, everyone's diving at the basketball. There's usually uncalled fouls in those situations because the refs can't see anything and you're just going to end up turning the basketball over. So number one is just be more deliberate about when to attack. And then number two is use your physical advantages. You're bigger and stronger than just about every guy that plays your position and certainly a, a, a very good athlete. And so using that as a, uh, as he's a very strong player too. turn your back, turn your back and protect the basketball. Gabe Vincent's on you, clear the damn side, get the ball in your left hand, work off the bounce by bumping Gabe off until you get to a spot where you can make something happen. And I think, again, he's too talented to not eventually figure this stuff out. He's too good of a shooter. He's got a lot more of that creative shot-making ability even than Jason Tatum does. That's why he was over 40% on pull-up jumpers during the regular season. He was lights out for two rounds of the playoffs this year and really damn good for four rounds last year. It was just a a perfect storm that led to a bad series. A really well-coached team that was taking away his easy opportunities. Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, and Eric Spolster kind of sapping him of his confidence and leading him to even uh, struggle in easy opportunities. And then he had to lean heavily on his weakness, which is static half-court shot creation. That will get developed in time. He's too talented. He's still young. I'm a big believer in Jalen Brown, and I think he's going to be a perennial All-NBA guy. Now, in, in summation... He's one of the most reliable and productive stars in the league. Again, only five players went for 26-6-3 and in the la- and, and played at least 60 games this year. Jalen Brown was one of those five. That's why he made second-team All-NBA this year. That's why voters considered him a top-10 player in the regular season this year. He's also one of the very best transition weapons in the entire NBA. And he's one of the best athletes in the NBA. Which brings me to my final point. Jalen, just like every Celtic declined as a defensive player this season. It was really the main reason they didn't win the championship or have at least a better chance to uh, than they ended up with. He has the athletic tools to be one of the very best and most versatile defenders in the NBA. If he wants to be a perennial All-NBA player, if he wants to be a guy that's making second-team, third-team All-NBA every year, he has to recommit himself to the defensive end of the floor. All right, number 16. A guy that I still don't think people realize how good he is, Jamal Murray. First season back from a major injury is always a bit uneven. Um, anybody who's suffered a lower extremity injury, I broke my foot once, so I have a, a, a not the same type of rehab length, but I have a, a similar um, kind of experience. I didn't trust my foot to even plant on. Even when it was healthy, I didn't trust it for a long time. And that sucked because in that particular season, I was like awful in non-conference play. And then in conference play, I ended up making an all-conference team. So I played much better as soon as I kind of clicked into uh, into form as I kind of trusted my foot again. Imagine you had surgery. I just walked around in a boot for a couple months. Imagine you were in surgery. And not only that, you barely moved for months as part of your uh, initial phase of your healing Then you go through this slow, painstaking rehab, and you're finally back. Obviously, there's going to be hesitation. Obviously, there's going to be a lack of trust. That's that's an important part of the recovery process, and that's you know that's why I think Clay Thompson had a much better regular season this year than he did the previous year. It's it's not exactly uncommon when you see guys like Kevin Durant just step onto the court after a serious injury and look great. 
That's really rare, and that's kind of what makes Kevin Durant an alien. But in 65 games played in this regular season, Jamal averaged 24 and 6, 57% true shooting, but he had 25 plus points 18 times. So it was clear that the ceiling was in there. He was just working through the rust and building that confidence in his knee. But then he goes up a huge level in the playoffs. Jamal Murray in this playoff run averaged 26, 6, and 7 on 59% true shooting. In a four-game sweep of the Lakers, he averaged 33 points, six rebounds, five assists on 65% true shooting, including a bunch of really big shots in fourth quarters of those games to help put the Lakers away. Then he ends the season definitively as the second best player on a team that hoisted the Larry O'Brien trophy. And that is why he deserves to be up as high on this list as he is. Winning matters to me, and it should matter to all of you. It's the reason we play this game. And that is why I have Jamal Murray as high as I do. I I want to make sure we reward players who win basketball games. Only three players in the entire NBA playoff field this season averaged 25, 5, and 7. Only three. Jamal Murray's teammate, Nikola Jokic, and De'Aaron Fox, who did it in just one series. So 25, 5, and 7, when it comes to playmaking and scoring... There aren't many players who or who produce as well as Jamal Murray does on the playoff stage. And he was just as good in the bubble. But it, 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 really, it really has been a, a revelation. Now, we can argue about what Jamal Murray actually is. And he will need to be a consistently great regular season player to move higher on this list. But simply looking at this year's postseason, he produced and impacted winning at a superstar level. That has to be acknowledged just within this off, this postseason. If I told you a player averaged 26, 6, and 7 on 59% true shooting and won the NBA championship, you'd be thinking a lot of big-name guards. And you'd be calling that dude a superstar. That's what Jamal Murray did. And again, he has to do it in the regular season to like truly get recognized at that level. But I think he's going to. The dude came off a knee injury. I wouldn't be surprised at all if he averaged 23, 5, and 7 this year. It's completely on the table. And so that's why I don't think he can be any lower than 16th on my list. We have to acknowledge the winning winning of an NBA championship. Jamal Murray's half-court shot creation in the playoffs this year was outrageously good. He ran 319 pick-and-rolls leading to 374 points. That is 1.17 points per possession. That was first place out of 17 players in the playoffs this year to run at least 100 pick and rolls. Now, of course, he's running it with the best player in the league in Nikola Jokic. That is obviously a factor here. But Jamal is doing his part in those situations. The shot making is ridiculous. And even when he's going one-on-one, he's successful. 95 points on 93 isos and post-ups. Anything over a point per possession and self-creation in the playoffs is outstanding. And his shot making is ridiculous. 45% on catch and shoot jumpers, 46% on pull up jumpers, 50% on floaters. He had 10 dunks in the postseason run. Again, all superstar stuff. Again, if I told you any of the top shooting guards in the league did what he did, we'd be calling them a top 10 player. Now, he's not. He's not a top 10 player. And I think he needs to bridge two gaps to get there. And who knows if he ever will be able to. But in terms of his playoff production, that's top-tier stuff. First of all, he needs to put up regular season numbers close to this level of production. Why? Because that's what his peers do. 
And if you want to be on the same level as your peers, you've got to be able to accomplish what they can accomplish. He needs to be able to put up regular seasons like what Devin Booker does, for instance. Secondly, he was a problem defensively for Denver in this playoff run, much more so than Nikola Jokic ever was. Not in a way that over, uh, like erased his positive impact. Uh, I thought that he was a huge positive, but that is the next step for him. Devin Booker actually is a perfect comp because Devin Booker was kind of similar to him as a defensive player early in his career. But now Devin Booker's like a legitimately like solid average defensive player at his position. And it's just because he fuels himself with competitiveness and gives a shit on that end of the floor. And especially on a team like Denver that has as much firepower as they do, he should be able to devote that much in terms of resources in that direction. And and this is kind of the way I look at it. In these lists, everyone is really close to each other. Like I told you guys before, number 12 on my list and number 39 are really not that far apart. But these little things are what differentiate. Winning got him up to this level and playoff production got him up to this level, but he's got to produce in the regular season and he's got to become at least an average defensive player. But kudos to NBA champion Jamal Murray for rising all the way up to 16th in this year's player rankings. All right, guys, that is all I have for today. We will be back tomorrow with 15, 14, and 13. As always, I sincerely appreciate your support, and I will see you guys then. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.